Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. This morning we're talking about simplicity and generosity. And I wanted to say to you from the outset that I am not an expert in this area, especially simplicity. Um, This is an area that I just think as followers of Jesus, it's a place of discovery, of growth, of examination. And as I was thinking about this week and as Pastor Benji and I and uh, Pastor Stevie were comparing notes uh, about this weekend, one of the things that I found myself reflecting on is there's this verse in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3 that begins with these words, but one thing I endeavor to do. And, and I've been kind of thinking about that all week. Can, can life really be reduced to one thing? Do I, do I even agree with that? Uh, can, 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 can life be reduced to one thing? Is there one thing? Is there this singularity? Is there this one idea, thing, purpose that can sum up our lives? I mean, we're all in different seasons of our lives and we all have different experiences. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but from your seat today, if you, th- if you were to answer that question, do, could you say one thing? Now, I know some of you come from church backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, and so it's like the old joke of the Sunday school teacher who asked the class, uh, what's bushy? hibernates in the winter, lives in trees, eats acorns, and no one raises their hands. And finally, this one little girl raises her hand and says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. <laughs> but that's, that's not gonna get us anywhere. Pat answers, fix answers, obligatory answers, aren't going to get us very far in life until we kind of wrestle with and struggle with the question. And so uh, as, as we talk about s- simplicity and generosity this morning, I want to ask you, it, even to begin at that point, can, can you really answer that question? Do, do I agree that there's one thing that could sum up my life that I would endeavor to arrange my life around and under that would command my focus and command my attention going forward. So within that, Paul, Paul writes, he says, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the upward, towards the goal for the prize of the upward or heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you or your device, whatever you read the Bible on, let me invite you to stand. And I'd like for you, if you, I know that you're all multitaskers, far better, far adept at it than I am, 
that, um, so you're capable of holding this question. Is there one thing that I could hold my life under in service of as we read this passage um, from the Sermon on the Mount? Nestled within the Sermon on the Mount is this wonderful teaching about how we might live if we're going to say, I would like for there to be one thing that I live my life under and for. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Even you of little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Father, in Jesus' name, as we stand before you and with one another, would the tangible weight of your presence embrace us this morning? Father, would you be the one who pastors us? When we go back to school tomorrow or back to work tomorrow, whatever our day looks like, and we have the conversations about what we did over the weekend, would we have the confidence to say, if this is true, that we were pastored by you today? We heard from your voice. We learned from you. We sensed a, a deep and delighting grace bubble up from within or come upon us from without but we knew that we had an encounter with you. 
in song, in word, or in relationships. That you filled up this time, this place, this space with your presence. You made it holy and you welcomed us into it. So Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us receptive hearts and minds to hear what you're saying to us as a community through the songs we've sung, the scriptures we read, or the words I share, but that, Lord, that you cared for us as a community and you cared for us personally. So we welcome you, Lord, afresh into this time and we present ourselves anew to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So there's this challenge in these words and that there might be one thing and that there is one thing worth seeking above everything. One thing I aspire to do, Paul says, Jesus says, to seek first. So, so there's this challenge for us to align ourselves around something rather than some things. And in doing so, it's, it's an invitation that we're, given, uh, we're being given. So the first thing I want to say as we talk about simplicity this morning is this. Knowing Christ is the foundation of our quest for simplicity and our aspirations to be generous. This is not a conversation about money first. You have to know this. It runs far deeper than the question of how much money can be quote unquote righteous and how many possessions we can have to be okay with God. This is not a question about possessions or wealth. I wrote this as I was thinking about this morning. Simplicity is about the posture and condition of a soul defined by a singular devotion to Jesus. It is a response to the magnanimity of God's love and grace lavished upon us and the freedom it has granted us to steward our lives with uncluttered generosity. If our understanding, if our foundation for this con conversation this morning is not relational, then what's going to happen is we're going to kind of devote our lives to a tick box theology, okay? Think of like check boxes, to-do lists, that if you get all you, some, some of you live by these. In fact, a day isn't great unless you can tick, tick, tick off all your boxes, right? You, you, some of you might have your reminders list on your phone. You might carry three by five cards in your pocket. You might have a little field notes guide that you tick off things in, but whatever it is, a, a day isn't complete until the boxes have been ticked off. You can have that approach to God that if I do this, if I do that, if I do this, if I believe this, if I don't do this, if I do do that, and, and life becomes a series of tick boxes, which means that ultimately your view of God and your view of relationships is transactional, not relational. When you have your first crush in life, right? The, the first person you ever had a crush on you have all these dreamy thoughts, right? And, 
and, and you start thinking about the things that you would do if only I had a chance to prove myself. It's kind of like the Princess Bride movie, right? For true love, you would, you would do anything. You would cross any chasm, you would do anything, you would fight any bad guy, you know, whatever it took is what you would do. That's relational motivation. Tick boxes all, are all about what I have to do, what I should do, what I'm obligated to do. And that is not going to posture our soul to where we even have the freedom to have this conversation because your understanding of God is, is that he's the cosmic cop uh, who's keeping track of all your infractions. He's the cosmic accountant who keeps track of your deposits and your withdrawals. And, and, he, and do you have credit in your account? And so all of that, those are all transactional views of God. If I do this, God will do that. Uh, that's, that's transactional, and there is no motivation for living from that kind of relationship. Sadly, some of us have grown up in families that have been transactional, where, where love has been conditional, and that, that warps us, it shrivels us, it, it deprives us of the opportunity to try and fail, to discover, to, to, to be, um, to, to risk creativity, whatever it might be, uh, what's driving you is not relational. So first and foremost, to even have this conversation, the foundation for it has to be relational. The second thing within this that I just want to say is it's relational, um, and that simplicity, because it it derives from this relationship, this dynamic relational encounter. Don't confuse simplicity with what's kind of becoming more fashionable uh, lately, which is minimalism. Minimalism, the idea of shrinking life down to bare necessities. That's not, it, it can have things in common with simplicity, but simplicity is the posture of the, of the soul relationally before the Lord, where, where ultimately minimalism is posturing your things around yourself, and it's just about what pleases you most on how to live. So for example, I thought about bringing them this morning. Because I've been traveling a lot increasingly, I've, I've discovered minimal travel. So when I can travel for two weeks out of a backpack about this big that I just strap on my back, and along the way, you, you learn little hacks, travel hacks about how to travel and what you can t take and shrink everything. And so when you're looking to travel minimally, you're always looking for the latest version of shrinking. Okay? Okay. It might appear like I'm in the pursuit of simplicity, but I'm really not. Um, I'm in the pursuit of convenient travel. And, and, and one doesn't have any relationship to do with the other. Actually, you can watch these videos on YouTube about minimal travel, and they put out, someone will say, this is what I travel with for two weeks or a year, and they lay out so many things that they put out on the table that they all fit into their bags. And I'm thinking to myself, I would need an inventory list to travel like this. I mean, I'd have to wake up every morning and say, do I have this, do I have this, do I? And th that wouldn't work for me. And so when I think about how I'm gonna travel minimally, I'm always thinking about what works for me. That's not a spiritual question. 
Okay? What works for me is not a spiritual question. That's a me question. Now, it's not necessarily a sin to ask that question. It's not unrighteous to ask that question. But it's not a question that's coming out of my relationship with God. It's, it's a question that's coming out of my relationship with me. What's convenient for me? It can look like simplicity, but it's not. What we're talking about this morning is a posture of the soul and a way of living that is motivated and derived out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, Christ knows we cannot live well with divided hearts. And so he makes the observation uh, in Matthew chapter 6 that we can't serve two masters. The way we're wired, we really can't serve two masters. In fact, Jesus makes two observations and a promise in Matthew chapter 6. The first thing he says is, and you all know this to be true, the world is an uncertain place. And so the things we like, we love, we try and hold on to, they're susceptible to breaking. I mean, how many of you have broken your phone at, at some point or another? Okay. It falls and, and you have so many anticipatory thoughts in that half a second it takes to fall off the table to the ground. And, and if it falls face down, you're wondering, what are you gonna see when you pick up your phone? And sometimes it's like, ah, it really did shatter. Other times it's surprising that it didn't. The world is an uncertain place. Things decay, things break, things get stolen. And so, pre Treasured possessions are vulnerable because the world's a special, is an uncertain place. And then within that, he says, and not only is the world uncertain, but human beings weren't made. Don't have the capacity. We don't have the capacity to serve two masters. have multiple obligations that command our thoughts, our hearts. And so Jesus, in, after making those two observations, he simply says, therefore, that's the amazing thing, he says, the world's an uncertain place, your possessions, your wealth are at risk, and you can't serve multiple masters. And so what does he say after that? He says, therefore, I say to you, don't worry. Now, if you go back to Matthew 6, I just want to say this, because sometimes we, we, we go down trails, I think, that Jesus never intended. He doesn't tell us in Matthew 6, don't worry about people. He says, don't worry about things. Sometimes I know Christians who read this and feel that it's a sin to worry about the health and welfare of people they love. Jesus never says, don't worry about people. 
Paul, in, in one of his letters, talks about his concern for Onesimus, and he says, we were sick unto death. I don't think you could be sick unto death out of concern for someone and not worry about what the outcome of their health is going to be. So he's just talking about don't, don't worry about things. Don't let your worry, your obligation, your heart be imprisoned by your worry about things. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, how you're going to look. Don't, don't clutter your mind and your heart going there. So Jesus knows we can't live with this divided hearts, and so Christ invites us into the fullness of a simple life when he invites us, don't worry about these things. He's inviting us, I think, into the sphere of what I would call the simple life, and that life is both a gracious opportunity and I think a lifelong challenge to enter into an embrace. And if I have any regret on this subject, it's, it's I wish that I had thought about this and kind of been given the opportunity to enter into this reflection when I was far younger than when we first started considering this. Because I think if you, can, if you can enter into this conversation and into this reflection when you're in your 20s, it's like, what you're told about saving for the future, that if you can put 30,000, is it 10,000 or 30? Becky's the church accountant. How much is it? $10,000 in an account by the time you're 30, is it? What, speak up. Okay, I'm gonna say it's 30. Um, if you can save $10,000 and not touch it and put it away in a retirement account, when you're, by the time you're 30, you'll be a millionaire by the time you're 60. That, that's a remarkable statistic. I think because it, there's rewards in that, and I wish that in the theme of simplicity, I had start thinking about this in my 20s. Because what simplicity does as we explore this together is, is it gives us freedom and it unclutters our life. So when Jesus invites us into the fullness of the simple life, and he says, therefore, I say to you, don't worry. Don't worry about all these things. He's inviting us to unclutter our lives of things, of choices. When I, when I graduated from college, um, part of, I had flunked out of college my first time through, and as part, and then during that time, I, I came to a committed faith in following Jesus Christ. And part of that was I had this experience at a, on a beach. We have Danville people here, so it was a camp that we ran at Catalina Island uh, for our youth group uh, from Community Presbyterian Church in Danville, California. Uh, there we go. Uh, do, how many wolves do we have in the house? Okay, all right. So we would take... 150 students, I was working with the youth group in those years, and we would take 150 students to Catalina Island, 75 of whom 
did not yet confess a faith in Jesus Christ. So in order to go to the camp, you had to bring someone who was not a follower of Jesus yet. Because we wanted it to be inclusive and kind of missional and stuff like that. And so while we were there the first night, uh, we, we had what we called singing because we didn't understand worship in those years. And so I was playing my guitar and one of the students that we brought stood up and he said, what do I have to do to become a Christian? And I was a relatively new Christian myself then, but I knew that the opening night was not the time to ask that question. Ismail just gave me a word from the Lord. Um, there's a white Sonata in the parking lot that will be towed if not moved ASAP. And it's a new Sonata, congratulations, uh, without plates, but your car is gonna find a new home in about five minutes. So if that's yours, go ahead and attend to that. So, so anyways, the student, he stood up, he said, what do I have to do to become a Christian? And, and I knew that this is the opening night, that's meant to be a last night question. And so um, I turned to the pastor and I said, what do you want me to do? And he said he'd take it. And I stood at the back and I felt the Lord say, go down by the beach. And there at the beach, I had this experience of, the only way I can describe it was the Spirit of God coming on me. And there were two things that I knew from that occasion. One was that I would not have an issue with alcohol or drugs again. And the other one was that he was calling me to be a pastor. Had no idea what a pastor was, but as part of that call to be a pastor was to go to Fuller Seminary. So I went back to college, got my degree, and was given the opportunity to, and applied to Fuller, but I was given an opportunity to have a full scholarship to Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. And it was gonna be tuition, room, board, and Carol and I were married at the time, and so they were guaranteeing her a job on campus if she didn't get a teaching job in the community. And I complicated our lives unnecessarily by feeling like I ought to have a decision to make in this. It, I, somewhere along this, I ought to be making choices and stuff. And I paralyzed us in this tension of, if I go to Fuller, we don't have promise of aid or anything. We don't even have housing lined up. But if we go to Princeton, of course, da, da, da. And so I turned it into a checklist, a two-column thing. What's the pros of going to Princeton? What's the pros? Of, I guess I'm not good with numbers. Maybe it was three columns. It was the pros of going to Princeton. What were the pros of going to Fuller? What were the things against Princeton? What were, I guess it's four columns. What are the things against Fuller? And it was this constant decision of, you know, should we go here? Should we go there? But I turned it into a transaction when it was always relational. The relational part was, I'm calling you to, Mark, I'm calling you to be a pastor and go to Fuller. God, God had laid it out for me, all the freedom in the world for that, but I had to make it complicated. I cluttered my life. We can clutter our lives with unnecessary decisions. We can clutter our lives with things that obligate our service and attendance. And so Jesus invites us into the fullness of a simple life where we unclutter our lives. Secondly, we have the freedom to live and give our lives to what matters most. Wouldn't that be great? Don't you ever feel that your life is cluttered 
by trivia, by, by things that you don't even really care about. How many times do you find yourself going, why did I say yes to this? Why did I say I would go to this? I don't want to go to this. I don't even know these people. I don't, do I want a night of small talk? I could be watching something at home or you know, hanging out with close friends, my, my people, my community. I mean, it gives us freedom to live and give our lives to what matters most. Thirdly, joy of partnering with God and his outrageous generosity. I'm going to skip that now because we're going to talk about that later. Uh, fourth, a call to missional living. Seek first, he says, instead of being cluttered by things and worry about things, instead seek first the kingdom of God. It's an invitation, it's an offer. So often we read the scriptures solely through the lens of command when yes, there is command there, but there's invitation. It, it's like when Jesus calls the apostles, he says, come, follow me. There's both, if, if God says come, come, but at the same time, within the, the very fact that he would be saying, come is an invitation. So when Jesus says, instead of this, you can seek first the kingdom of God, it's possible that you can be a woman or a man living on purpose, out of relationship, to, to have purpose that unifies your life. Have any of you done Strength Finders? Okay, okay I'm not gonna use that analogy. All, the, all that to say is that one of the things that grew out of that exercise for me is I, years ago I wrote a purpose statement. And that purpose statement has four or five points. It, it's first is the recognition I have a purpose. Isn't that wonderful to have a sense of purpose that, that might unify your life? Um, my purpose is to multiply God's kingdom presence through Christian people locally and globally. Okay. Third is I can't pursue my purpose unless I'm part of a team. I don't feel called to do it alone. I won't feel content or fulfilled unless I'm fulfilling my purpose. And the fifth one, yeah, there are five, is that since I have no guarantee of mortal life tomorrow, I must fulfill my purpose today. Okay. So it, w within that, there's a lot of variety, there's a lot of opportunity, there's possibilities of discovery, uh, but within that, there's the Jesus invitation that I have the ability, I have the opportunity to live on mission. Fifth, the invitation is to holistic living. That because I don't have to have a life that's fragmented by worry, I have the opportunity and the invitation to have a life that's holistic. It's holistic relationally. It's, it's, it's holistic in the sense that it's vertical with God, it's horizontal with, with people, and it allows God to do deep things within me, within the context of a much larger community that I'm a part of. Six, exuberant sharing and caring, that because my life doesn't have to be cluttered by things and fragmented by worry, it creates space for me to enter in and enjoy the empathy that Jesus has for women and men and youth and kids that are poor or broken or weary. 
because an uncluttered life allows us to see more clearly. Because our vision isn't fractured by the distractions that are before us. In the early second century, writing in the year AD 125, an early Christian philosopher, Aristides, made this observation about the early church. They walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. They despise not the widow, and they grieve not the orphan. He or she that has distributes liberally to those who have not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof. They rejoice over him as if they were their own brother. For they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world, and any of them see him, that he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for their needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man or a woman that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. Such is the power of an uncluttered life, to have the time, the space, the mindset to care, and not just to care. Because how many of you, I mean, I've been in prison, how, how many times do you wish I would have liked to help but I can't. I don't feel I can. Isn't that the worst feeling in the world? To feel powerless, to be part of a solution, and, and, and yet there's something in you that just aches because you feel like your time, your money, whatever, it's, 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 it's already been spoken for. There's, there's, there's no margin. Seventh, the power to renunciate. If we're not gonna worry, because we realize life is not found there, we have the opportunity to come alongside other women and men and people that struggle just like we do and say, boy, I get it, but you know, I've discovered life isn't there. That's not where life is. Life is not found there. In fact, St. Francis of Assisi had this group of monks that he would, he would um, send out, he would deploy them, and he called them God's jugglers. And they were called God's jugglers because like a juggler amuses, their role was to work with downcast women and men and to help them discover that the life that they're looking for was not in the things or the location that they were investing their time and their energy. And so they were called God's jugglers to kind of keep things in motion, keep people's attention, amuse and release and bring, really the, their goal was to introduce joy back into the, into the lives of the disheartened. And if we're not gonna worry about things, then we have the promise and the invitation into the constancy of contentment. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs 37, two things I ask of you, 
This is a great passage. Do not deny them to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need, or I shall be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or I shall be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What a great prayer for contentment. So, okay, let's go through quickly a framework for entering this Christ-filled life of simplicity and generosity. And again, I'm not sharing this with you as an expert. I'm just sharing it with you as a fellow reflector. First is, is that the framework begins with circumspection without legalism. It, it, it begins with self-reflection. So let's go back to the opening question. Do, do you think there's one thing that can define your life that you can spend a lifetime engaged to pursue that will call upon all your creativity, all your loves, your longings, your aspirations, your dreams, those deep yearnings, and that all of life can come under the banner and be simplified by one thing. So it begins with circumcision. Circumcision, my God. <laughs> my life began with circumcision. On the eighth day, I was circumcised. But, you know, <laughs> wow, can, can we edit that out of the recording? <laughs> Wow, okay. So life begins with circumspection. Okay. And, and, and this cannot be a tick box for the following reasons. We all vary in background. We, we all vary in background. Your approach, let's say, to things is gonna be very different based on your background. If you grew up comfortably where, where things came to you easily, because of the wealth or status of your families of origin, then you're gonna have a different approach than someone who grew up, I, I work with someone who grew up sleeping on a floor in, in one room because that's all that they could afford. In fact, the room was a garage. How, how you grew up, your background. My parents were from the GI generation that lived through the depression. And so my mom and dad have stories of waiting four hours in line for a loaf of bread. And they came, my dad's dad was a doctor. My mom's father owned a chain of pharmacy shops in Jersey City and Manhattan. So they had, quote, unquote, income. But still, they had to wait with everybody else for two, three, four hours in line for a stick of butter or a loaf of bread during the Great Depression. Their approach to food was very different. I mean, you, don't, you don't leave a dot on your plate if you're the child of a GI generation. You don't leave crust on the plate you know, because in their mind, so, so as, how you think it's gonna vary by background. We have different emotional temperaments, so it's gonna vary emotionally. We vary vocationally on our jobs and and how we think about work, we vary with our biases, what we love, what we don't like, what makes us feel happy, what makes us feel insecure. And we vary in context of culture and experience of a changing world scene. 
All of those things factor into how, we, how we're going to reflect on simplicity, on the simple life. Secondly, we recognize that the enemy of simplicity is clutter. And the reason why the enemy of simplicity is clutter is because it over-obligates our souls. The more things, and under things, I'm going to list responsibilities, obligations, commitments, possessions, the more things that clutter our lives, they're going to obligate our soul. Carol and I had to recarpet our upstairs because we had an unfortunate accident where a bottle of bleach got spilled on our carpet and you just can't do anything with that. So we recarpeted our upstairs. We try and keep things relatively simple. As I hated everything about this. There was points where I thought I'd rather live with the stain than have to box up our things. So in my office alone, how many boxes did I have? I had 29 boxes just out of my office alone. And I thought we were keeping things pretty simple. Do I really need all these books on my shelf? Do I really need these cords for the things? I mean, how many cords do you have to travel with these days? You know, and, and so you know, I, and at one point I said, we could have moved. The only thing we didn't pack up really was the kitchen. We, we, we could have left. I mean, these things, everything on that shelf is an obligation. I mean, how many obligations do we want to be connected with? So recognize that the enemy of simplicity is clutter. Third, acts of, renunci of renunciation. Remove the clutter. But here's the thing. What, what are you going to use as your measure for what you should take out? And I want to suggest to you that joy should be your measure. That, that joy, beauty, discovery, those things that create kind of serendipity, causes you to revisit, rethink, remember. Memory is a really important part to simplicity because what we remember made us feel whole, connected, joyful. Those things ought to stay present in our lives lest we forget. So look at your budgets. What are you spending on that is an unnecessary obligation, that doesn't foster joy, that, that, that doesn't allow you to enter into that generous space? You're a spider. Look at our calendars. How cluttered are our calendars? Do we really need our calendars to be that full? Do you have a Sabbath? And we talked about that last week. Is there one 24-hour period in your life that, that you are not doing anything that you consider to be work. One of my spiritual fathers, he loved gardening. I hate gardening. So he could spend his day off on his knees in the dirt gardening and, and have the best day of his life. For me, hell could be an eternity of gardening. So... So, so that's, you're just not going to find me doing that on my day off. Okay. Look at our calendars. Are we taking a Sabbath? Are we populating our calendar with the people and opportunities that can 
tributes to simplicity or is our calendars filled with obligations that are just gonna tire us out? Look at our entertainments. Entertainment's not bad, but use that space for what truly entertains because what we call entertainment can just simply be mere distraction and mere distraction is another expression of clutter. Look at our social media engagement. Do we really need to be spending that much time on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or, or whatever? Is that, is that really building the community that we long to be a part of and to give our lives to? Look at our relationships. Acquaintances versus friendships. One of the things that I, I value the older I get is our friendships and really I've got to a point where I'm decluttering our lives of acquaintances of just merely mere acquaintances it's that that time is not going to be life-giving it's it's your friendships that are life-giving and Carol and I cherish the reality that we have friendships now that go back 30 35 years that um, that are life-giving to us. Take the time to cultivate friendships. Those simplify our lives versus acquaintances, which not only do they clutter our lives, but you'll find yourself lonely and empty. Fourth, unplug from consumptive society. Unsubscribe. How many of you get stuff, text messages, emails, uh, and it's like, how do they know I'm even alive? And you're just on these people's mailing list. I've kind of decided, man, I'm, I'm typing stop on text messages now. I don't know how they got me, but they're not keeping me. And so it's stop here. It's unsubscribe that. Because, I mean, you, I, I have an email client that it divides things between the inbox, the feed, and the paper trail. The paper trail is where you keep all your receipts and things for future reference. The, the feed is all these news feeds and things. I, I'm just now starting to go through and go, I don't need to know this news or that sale or whatever. And so I'm just starting to make a habit of when they send me something, immediately turning around and unsubscribing. And so now I don't have the same dread I used to have when I open up the email. Like it or love it, there's going to be email. Um, quality above quantity. Think in terms of beauty, durability, kind of one and done. Simplicity isn't about cheap. It's about cheap, whether, cheap can cost a lot of money, but it's cheap to you because ultimately you grow out of your affection for it, you lose your attention for it, whatever, and it's, it's, it, it doesn't have this abiding quality. So like if you play guitar and you're serious about gu guitar, and you know you're gonna to wanna to do it as far as you know your whole life and, and you're invested. You should get the most beautiful, best guitar possible. Get that guitar that will last a lifetime. The wood is gonna mature in its tone and, 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 the, and the face of the guitar is gonna get that patina and, and yellow with age and it just becomes something beautiful, something you're drawn to, you wanna pick it up, you wanna play it. There's nothing wrong with that. 
If God's given you the gift of hospitality, then get the biggest living space you can afford. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing self-indulgent about having the tool that God has would like you to have because of the life that he's called you to share. But if God hasn't called you to that, why do you need a 5,000 square foot home for two people that are never going to invite anybody in it? I mean, that, that, now you've got clutter. Now you've got an obligation to maintain and clean. And uh, Why go down that road? Recreation that is healthy, joy-filled, inspiring, and, and community-based, and or community-based. The great thing about recreation is it's an opportunity to, to reflect, to enjoy, to fill your life with something that's life-giving, life-sustaining, strengthening, and it can frequently involve other people. No one's buying. It doesn't require the latest fashion. It just requires you to be present and engaged. It's a great way to unplug. Again, this buy for usefulness, not status. We covered this already. Simplicity is not synonymous with cheap. It resonates more with durability, usability, and beauty. Value serving not what serves you. Center your life on generosity, not getting. And finally, number five, create and cultivate community that celebrates simplicity and generosity. There are communities that, I don't know that they set out to do this, but you can find yourself in communities that, that seem to celebrate the clutter, the things. You can find yourself in communities that, for you, might make you feel like you don't have enough. You don't wear the right things. If only I had this, if only I do that, if only I spoke this way, if only I watched these things, if only I listened to that, um, then I could be in. And that need to be in will create clutter in your life. Because frequently for us, when we feel that pressure to be in, it's with something or towards something or with people or towards people that are not organic to who you are. It's not the way you're wired. It's not the way you're made. And therefore, in order to see yourself in that group or with that group, it requires changes that are not natural for the way that you're wired. And therefore, it's bound to introduce more clutter into your lives. It's a distraction from the woman or man that God intended you to be. Okay, let's conclude. Number one, generosity is birthed and enlarged through simplicity. The whole thing about simplicity is, is that simplicity preserves the margins in our lives of time, maybe possessions, of money that allow us to enter into generous spaces. When our life is cluttered, 
and we're having to spend all of our time and all of our money towards things or maintenance or people, we have very little margins. And when we have very little margins, we actually have very little opportunity than to express generosity in the way that we would desire to. Simplicity creates margins. It's the midwife of generosity. And clutter will cause our generosity to be stillborn. We might have the desire, but we can never bring it to expression because we've maxed out our margins. Practical examples of generosity mean, can mean listening. Having the margin to listen. I'm horrible at this. You can ask Carol. Well, she's starting to tell me something and I'll, I'll say sometimes, just, can you just tell me the bottom line? She doesn't want to give me the bottom line, but I'm out, I'm, I've been listening to people all day. I have no margin left. But we can be generous in the time that we have to listen. Or maybe you're, you're talked out for the day, but your generous act to someone could be to speak to them. Just take the time to speak with them. Be an inviter. These things don't cost money to invite people. You see someone who looks alone, is on their own, isn't being included. You could live the generous life and have time to go over speak and invite them. Share your gifts. Some of you can draw. Some of you are good with plants. You can give a plant. You can give a clipping. You can share your music. You can share a favorite book. Give time to service or mission. People need you. You might not feel that way, but people need you. Share your youth with the oldest in your community. One of the things about aging is, one is that you don't know how to do it well, and the other thing is there's a deep-seated fear of becoming irrelevant to life and to people. And so to have people younger than you enter into your life and express care, it's really significant. On the flip side, share your age with the young, not to say how to do it, not to say you know, what to do or give direction, but just to be in relationship and see what God develops organically. The gift of silence and solitude that God might afford us. These are all expressions of generosity that don't cost a dime. And listen, I, it's expensive to be in San Diego and it's expensive to be a student in San Diego or finding your feet with your first job in San Diego. And, you could, be, you could be paralyzed by what you can't give financially, but this is a list of things that, that cost no money, that allow you to live a generous life now, but you won't be able to do any of these things if your life is maxed out and the margins are taken. Because generosity requires 
the margins that simplicity can get for us. And then finally, simplicity is not poverty. Ron Sider, in his book, Rich Christians in Asia Hunger, makes this observation. When Jesus asked the rich man to sell his goods and give to the poor, he did not say become destitute and friendless. Rather, he said, come and follow me. It goes back to the relationship. Talking about simplicity is not the same as poverty. It's the simplicity of following Jesus. And thinking about this morning, I wrote, it is the want of faith that makes us opt for earthly rather than heavenly treasure. If we really believed in heavenly treasures, who among us would be so stupid as to buy gold? We just don't believe it. Heaven is a dream, religious fan a religious fantasy that we affirm because we are orthodox. If we believed in heaven, we would willingly embrace simplicity. We would run to embrace we would run to embrace it because who in their right mind would allow clutter to keep them from the treasure Jesus that they deeply yearned for? Instead, many of us just like the assurance that something nice awaits us when this real life is over. The cluttered life will rarely testify that Jesus is the treasure we seek, the treasure we live for, and the treasure we endeavor to follow well. So Father, as we go back to that first question, is it possible that all of life could come under one thing, to be governed one by one thing, to be in the pursuit of one thing. And if so, the delight and freedom that we might enjoy, if we could discover that yield to that, let it define us and empower what we pursue. Thank you that that thing is not a thing, it's a person. And could we realign our lives with that person, Jesus, this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.